0: The subject of this podcast episode is really just how to study effectively. I'm going to tell you the best strategies, the things I've learned that have improved my performance kind of so, so, so much. So without further ado, let's get into it. And again, these tips and resources are based off the evidence and uh, a few personal anecdotes, but mostly based off uh, peer-reviewed evidence in some of the most well-respected journals. There are. So let's go right into it. The first thing I want to talk about is health and specifically sleep, medical issues, environment, mindset, and exercise. So let's attack those one at a time. Number one is sleep. Sleep is the huge, a huge, 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 huge factor in making you understand, learn, retain, and create new information. Uh, I want to go over two quick experiments, and then I'll just talk about it a little bit on my own. So in an interesting experiment, participants were asked to complete the Tower of Hanoi task, which is a complicated task where you have to kind of stack rings on different things. And they were asked to try it once when they were well-rested and another time when they were not well-rested. And so basically what they showed is that people who were well-rested had a 40% improvement in performance. That means the rate of solving this, this, uh, this Tower of Hanoi task. Uh, but people who weren't saw no improvement in their task. So again, People were asked to do the same task and given either, like, a resting time, a time to rest, or no time to rest. And I mean, like, sleeping, going into REM sleep overnight. And the people that got REM sleep overnight performed dramatically better. Okay. Another one I want to talk about is this is from Nature, which is a pretty hugely important journal, right? Uh, Well, basically, there was an algorithm. And uh, there was a complicated math problem. And you could solve it algorithmically, but there was an easier way to solve this problem. But the experimenters didn't tell them how to solve this problem. And what they did is they had they separated it into two groups. And they had one group that was able to sleep overnight. So one group that was allowed to kind of go back and sleep 12 hours overnight and come and try and solve the problem. And then they had the other group, which had 12 hours during the day of space. So they both had the same amount of time in between looking at the problem for the first time. But one group got to sleep, and the other group didn't get to sleep well. Well... When the group that slept did it, looking at the same interval, again, that's 12 hours, the rate of discovery of this easier way more than doubles. And this is amazing because it shows not only to me that sleep is helping you kind of solidify information, but it also means while you're sleeping, you're coming up with new solutions, new answers in your brain. You're almost creating magical theories in your brain As you sleep, because there are some studies and some theories and some hypotheses that when you sleep, you're not only like solidifying memories that are important, right? But also pruning and cutting out the specific memory connections to other thoughts and ideas. So you're actually making the fastest route to the information or the idea available kind of in your head, which is hugely, hugely important. The other thing, of course, is... When you don't sleep, you don't get this kind of nice boost in chemicals first thing in the morning. And these are like dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol. And these are chemicals that really help in your alertness and also help in your problem-solving ability. So if you don't sleep, you don't get these. Another thing is there's studies that show when you show up to a test, when you do a test uh, with no sleep whatsoever, it might be actually equivalent. Or when you want to perform a task, it might actually be equivalent to being drunk. So yes, drinking alcohol and not sleeping might actually be the same thing when it comes to perform- when it comes to performance on certain tasks. So definitely definitely get some sleep. And these are some things that I say over and over and over again, but some common Methods to improve your sleep or improve your sleep hygiene are, number one, you should fall asleep and wake up at the same time every day. For me personally, the best way to do this is to set my alarm at the same time every single morning. This way I know, okay, I'm going to wake up at this time every morning because, you know, you can make that happen with the alarm. It sucks, but you can make that happen the alarm. It's more difficult to set your go-to-bed time. Sure, you can sit in bed, but it's not as easy to actually fall asleep. That way, if you set your wake-up time, you know that's set and kind of over time, your sleep time will just adjust to that. The other thing I like to do is first thing when I wake up in the morning, and this is stolen from Dr. Andrew Huberman, but this is also obviously evidence-based and suggested by sleep doctors around the world, is get some light exposure when you first wake up. So what I like to do is I like to eat breakfast when I first wake up, which is another good recommendation, and then I like to walk outside and get some sunlight in our eyes. Because right evolutionarily, there's kind of this light signal that hits the back of our retina, that hits the super nucleus of our hypothalamus. And this is the part that's kind of regulating our circadian rhythm. And the blue light or the really bright light is one of the biggest regulators of this. Uh, and importantly, this blue light, this intensity of this light is really, really important too. And I don't know the exact numbers. I think it's The light inside like the normal overhead light you have can be anywhere from 40 to 100 times less powerful than the sunlight Outside and of course this varies based on kind of whether it's cloudy outside direct sunlight and where the Sun is in the sky Summer winter all these kind of things Uh, But a good rule of thumb is if it's sunny outside really sunny You really only need five minutes outside Uh, 10 minutes if it's slightly overcast and then maybe 10 to 30 minutes depending if it's like really really cloudy outside Because the Sun brightness is still penetrating those clouds, but it's getting you know reflected and isn't as significantly bright and that's equivalent to like six hours of sitting inside in the overhead light. And that doesn't work, right? Because we need to get this equivalent amount of lux or this equivalent amount of light power to our eyes within a certain amount of time to send the signaling cascade to our brain that says, listen, it's morning time. Listen, this light is saying it's awake time. So that's another tip for sleep. Another tip for sleep is don't exercise five hours before bed. Uh, Try to avoid and the reason for this, and I'm maybe I'll do a whole episode in sleep and stuff like that, but the reason for this is when you exercise, right, you you ramp up some of these alertness chemicals, again, cortisol, norepinephrine, epinephrine, all these kind of things. Uh, and it takes a little bit of time, actually a decent amount of time for these to fall off. So if you want to be extra, super, double, triple, super safe, I would wait five hours. I would make make them the closest time exercise to bed five hours. So if it's five hours before bed, don't do it any exercise. Uh, Another good thing is light exposure. You really want to stop looking at bright light about three hours before bed. This includes screens. This includes TV and stuff like that. Uh, This is the only time maybe blue blocking sunglasses make sense uh, before you go to bed because the blue, the wavelength of light that is blue is one of the greatest signals to kind of this point in your retina that goes to this point in your brain that says, listen, it's awake. It's time to be awake. So blue blocking glasses, I think, are actually counterproductive and bad in the morning, uh, but maybe later at night when you're trying to get close to sleep, but you still you know have to watch your TV or have to look at your phone, it might be good to have that in front of you. Um, the other thing is don't eat like two or three hours before bed. Uh, this messes with your sleep a little bit. And also the other thing is if you have any GI issues whatsoever, you want kind of that acid and stuff like that to kind of go out of your of course, acid is always in your stomach, but there's going to be more generated when it's in this first couple stages of digestion. And when you lay down, for the first time you lay down in the morning or, or at nighttime when you go to bed, gravity isn't helping you. And what happens is things are, start to flow up and people get GERD and regurg and all these kind of things. That's a kind of side point, but important for because I think tons of people have GERD. Try not to eat about three hours before bed. Another good thing is caffeine. So this might be a really long podcast. Holy smokes. We're only on point one of... Okay, let's just keep going through it because I think this is valuable information and will be kind of my base for the rest of my podcast. Okay. Caffeine. Caffeine is bad. Please caffeine is not bad but caffeine is bad when you get closer to sleep because it's got a pretty decent half-life I think it's four to six hours for it takes time to cut in half so I like to say at a minimum eight hours before bed stop drinking caffeine I like to stop drinking caffeine at uh like the the the, the next level so eight 12 hours before bed so I stop drinking caffeine around eight or nine o'clock because I go to bed at around eight or nine o'clock definitely if you're going to bed at 10 o'clock try to at the very very latest stop drinking caffeine at 2 p.m. Other good tips are your temperature. So when you go to sleep at night, your core body temperature drops about one degree Celsius or two to three degrees Fahrenheit. So we can kind of help this along, right, and help our mind kind of get ready in the sleep mode. There's actually a study that shows if you have kind of a warm bath, maybe an hour two hours before bed, the time it takes for you to fall asleep is less. So that's a good thing to do before bed. Uh, The other thing I like to do is make it very cold in my apartment when I go to bed. So I don't forget the exact temperature, but I think for me, it's around 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 67 degrees Fahrenheit. I like to set my AC before I go to bed. Um, And the other thing I like to do is make sure it's really, really dark. So I I bought special curtains because sometimes, you know, I'm staying up late or going to bed early. So I bought special curtains and I use those curtains to make sure it's really, really dark in my apartment. The other thing is to invest in a good bed, right? Invest in a comfortable mattress. You do spend a third of your life in that. Okay, I'm going to stop there on sleep because I think those are the biggest and most important things. I'll do a whole other episode maybe when I do a deep dive. But sleep is really important for studying effectively. The next thing I have here is medical issues. So this can also apply to sleep, right? The first thing you do when you go to a sleep doctor is they want to kind of rule out all the medical maladies that could be causing this. Again, this whole podcast is not medical advice. This is just things I learned that have helped me throughout my life, right? But please talk to your doctor before trying anything or doing anything. This is not medical advice in any way, shape, or form. But what they'll do when you go to the sleep doctor or something like that because you're having trouble sleeping is the first thing they're going to try and do is make sure they eliminate all medical possible causes. And this could be anatomical, right? If you have some kind of overgrowth kind of in the back of your throat or your tongue's too big or these kind of things, which is a real thing, maybe you have sleep apnea. So it means you stop breathing or you don't breathe well enough when you go to sleep. And this affects sleep because you don't realize it, but you're waking up throughout the night. And you never really manage to get in deep sleep because your body's awaking up and then falling asleep, waking up and falling asleep. Sleep, um, And so you want to get that solved. And really one of the, the best evidence-based ways to see if you're doing this is just do a sleep study or polysomnography to kind of figure that out. You can talk to your sleep doctor about that. The other thing they want to rule out probably is psychiatric causes. Maybe you're depressed, maybe you're anxious, maybe something clinically significant is going on that could be an, as, as, a, as a cause of pain here, pain point to kind of keep you awake. And then the other thing is, of course, some disease. You know, there are some diseases, unfortunately, that might manifest them well and, and not help not allowing you to sleep properly. Now going into studying effectively, the other thing we want to rule out is we want to make sure the best we can, of course some things can't be helped and treated and cured completely, um, but we want to make sure the best we can uh, that we're treating our medical disorders, whatever those may be, before we study. So maybe you're dyslexic and maybe you know you need to figure out these kind of certain things for dyslexia. Or maybe you have ADHD and you need to get your medications in order before you really, really focus. Or maybe you have pneumonia and a lung infection and it's just really hard because you're really tired and really sick. I would recommend you figure out the pneumonia before you try to figure out how to think better about studying. And these are just small things, but I find it funny that a lot of people in med school, you know, they don't sleep all the time. They don't go to see their doctor. Uh, They don't get the general health checkup and their general health in order, and then they question, like, why they can't study as well get your sleep, and your general health in order. Those are probably one of the biggest things to do. The next thing is environment. There are studies that show when we have kind of a distracted environment, particularly I'm going to mention two studies. One study is when they looked at surgeons and medical students, and looking at these surgeons and medical students, they found when there was more distractions in the form of visual or music kind of distractions, the time it took them to complete the procedure was greater than those who didn't have those distractions. And again, this is a simulation. This wasn't on real patients. So don't worry about that at all. And then when they looked at drivers with more distractions, uh, they, had, they had more accidents and they wouldn't do kind of as many. They weren't able to complete kind of performance tasks as quickly and as properly and correctly as the other people doing this. So try to remove all visual distractions from your immediate environment. And this might mean, you know, if you're working at home and you have a loud environment or a loud house, maybe you go to the library. Maybe you go somewhere else. But if you don't have the luxury or the ability to kind of leave your house uh, then maybe you talk to your family and say listen i'm really trying to study here can we make it a little bit more quiet or you set up your own room in the house you get some noise reducing headphones uh, these are all things that you want to focus on and then quickly to touch on music while studying uh, there's not really good evidence that says music helps with studying. Some say it hurts, some say it helps. Uh, But in general, to do really, really tough work, pretty much all the studies point towards if it's really tough work, uh, music actually harms your cognitive performance. But if you're doing some kind of work that is maybe a little bit more mundane and a little bit less deep thinking required, there might be some evidence that shows kind of this music is good to pump you up and good to keep you working through these tougher, tougher things. So that's about environment. The next thing is mindset. So mindset is insanely important and something that's undervalued when you get into studying and working really hard because you know you're spending hours and hours and hours in front of the computer. These sometimes might be fun things, sometimes not be not so fun things, but what you really want to do is try to change your mindset. You want to say, okay, instead of I have to do this thing, I get to do this thing. And that simple switch, that simple trick in your mind has a really magical way of kind of changing the way you think. The other thing you want to do is you want to figure out why you're doing this. Why are you studying? Do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to become an engineer? Do you want to write the next amazing novel? Become a history teacher, become a math teacher. It really helps if you figure out why you're actually doing these things. What's the end goal? And it'll help motivate you to study more and improve kind of in every way. The next thing I want to talk about is exercise. And exercise is definitely undervalued when it comes to performance and studying and becoming more effective when you're doing all these things, right? There are a couple of studies. I'm going to talk about those studies in a second, but I want to say a personal story really quickly. When I first came to med school, you know, I thought, I'm going to be the best medical student ever. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to kick You think you're about a medical seat? Bam! I'll kick you right out of here. That's what I thought. I thought I'd be the best medical student. And I said, no more going to the gym. No more hanging out with my friends. No more watching TV. I'm just going to sit down, read these books all day, write notes, do practice questions, and that's the only thing I'm going to do. Well, guess what? My scores and my grades went down. But... When I started to reintegrate the exercise, my lifestyle, all these kind of nice things that I was doing before, my grades went up. And I just want to talk about this one meta-analysis. So one meta-analysis looked at 21 studies in the effect of on acute and long-term cardiovascular intervention, that means exercise, on human memory. And they said, I quote, "Acute exercise improves memory in a time-dependent fashion by priming the molecular processes involved in the encoding and consolidation of newly acquired information. So exercise helps you learn more. And there's actually a couple other studies that shows there's this molecule called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, I think. uh, One, BDNF1, that helps with kind of the uh, modeling and connections of neurons in your brain. And um, these molecules these hormones are released more commonly when you are exercising so when you exercise you actually release these chemicals and exor- these These fantastic memory chemicals and help you retain this information more So when would I exercise well exercising at any time during the day is better than exercising at no time during the day But based on that evidence I would exercise right before I'm gonna study or in the middle of studying Um, and I like to do it in the middle of studying because usually I start studying at the beginning of the day, right, and we're at this magical state in the morning with our cortisol, our dopamine, our epinephrine, our norepinephrine to kind of really focus and really get a lot of work done. So I like to take advantage of that and get right to work. But usually kind of around lunchtime or maybe after working for a couple of hours, I kind of fade out. Uh, And this is another important factor because when you're studying and working really hard consistently over and over and over and over again, there's really a certain limit to your consistent focus uh, that pretty much all humans have. And that's around 90 minutes without taking a break, uh, and, but you start to get a little bit burnt out. And what exercise does, it's a great breaking point, so it's not only a break, uh, but it also releases these good chemicals that we talked about. And when you come back to studying, theoretically, maybe you'll, you'll return and retain and learn information a little bit better. So I would do it kind of halfway through or three quarters of the way through studying is when I would definitely exercise. Now those are the things outside of actually studying, right? And you'll really be like, wait a second, I thought we were going to talk about the Pomodoro technique, the Fein- Feynman technique. We will talk about those things coming up shortly. But I think it's really important to get your health in order before you start to pull these other levers. So are you sleeping enough? What kind of food are you eating? Are you drinking enough water? How's your relationships with the close people in your life? How is kind of your psychiatric health? How is your medical health? Get these things in order and I think you'd be Amazed at the changes it will have on your studying your ability to focus longer and your actual performance on tests Okay, now let's get into the good stuff Let's get into the things the specific things I would do to improve studying and improve performance when we're doing all this nice kind of stuff So let's still talk around things about around studying and then at the very end we'll get into study techniques So the first thing, again, change of mindset, I get to study. The second thing is planning things out. So you should plan as specifically as possible what you are going to study. So, for example, instead of, and I've said this so many times, but instead of study biology, which is a surefire way to fail, you should say, I'm going to study chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four of biology. And then you should step it up even another level. You should say, this is the amount of time during this day and at what time I'm going to dedicate to studying chapter 1. The time I'm going to dedicate to chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter chapter 4. So for example... If I had an entire day dedicated to studying, uh, I would treat it like a work day, so I'd go into this work from maybe 8 to 5 p.m., and I'd say, okay, from 8 to 10, I'm going to do Chapter 1. From 10 to 12, I'm going to do Chapter 2. From 12 to 1, I'm going to take a break for lunch. From 1 to 3, I'm going to do Chapter 3, and from 1 to 4, I'm going to do Chapter 4. Sorry, from one th- from 3 to 5, I'm going to do Chapter 4. And then, what you do is you break it down even more. So, what does chapter one mean? What does doing chapter one mean? Well, it means I'm going to do 25 flashcards around the section that I learned in chapter one. I'm also going to do 20 practice questions and then annotate those practice questions and turn them into flashcards. And as I'm going through this chapter, you know, I'm going to make sure that I understand all the topics and all these kind of things. So, you want to say as specifically as possible when where in the library, home, wherever, and how practice questions, flashcards, reading it for the first time, you're going to do this work. And it will dramatically improve kind of your ability to get things done in that time because maybe it's written down in a notebook. Maybe it's actually hours blocked out in your calendar and it'll make a huge, 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 huge difference. So definitely planning it is number one or number two thing to do. The next thing I would do is, which I said earlier, is have a start and an end time. So say, I'm going to start studying at this time and I'm going to end studying at this time. Because the issue comes in when you say, I want to study all this stuff and get all this stuff done today. And what often happens is people spend a lot of time on something that maybe isn't as impactful. So for example, if you're, let's use the biology example, if your test is only on chapters one through four and you spend seven out of the nine hours on chapter one, you're not using your time wisely. Well, maybe chapter one's the hardest and maybe it's the most difficult information, but assuming the test is a 25-25-25-25 split, spending those seven hours on chapter one is not the smartest thing to do in the world unless you know that you have 100% of chapter two, chapter three, and chapter four like down. Like You have that down very, very, very well, which you probably don't. So you should split it up evenly. You should realize when you're spending this time. The other thing people do is they end up and this goes back to the health thing is they end up ex- studying, extending their study time a little bit too long. So maybe it gets to seven o'clock at night and you're still studying. Well, then maybe it's a little bit too late at night to keep studying. Maybe you should go home, eat some breakfast, exercise, maybe hopefully earlier in the day and get a good night's rest. Because, again, there are studies that show that people who sleep more but study less perform better on exams. Again, so they compare, they take two sets of people. They have one set of people kind of study for a certain amount of time that's longer, but they don't get a full night's sleep. And they have another set of people, another set of like, group of people that study for less, but they get a full night's sleep and they perform better than the people who studied more. So sleeping is hugely, hugely important. Don't forget about that. Have a start and end time. The next thing is eat the frog. So get the thing that's hard, hardest to do done. First thing in the morning. When you first wake up in the morning, uh, you're in this kind of magical ready to get stuff done state. And because again, I'm going to say it again, your hormones are at a highest level, epinephrine, cortisol, dopamine, norepinephrine. These are at much higher levels than they are in the rest of the day. So when you sit down to do work at that time of the day, you're at the best kind of possible ray, the best possible strategy and mental state to perform that work. So do the hardest thing first. Not only that, when you do the hardest thing first, you kind of get on a train roll. You get on a roll, and you're able to do the next thing, and the next thing, the next thing. And you say, you know what? If I did this hardest thing first, it's okay. The other good thing about doing the hardest thing first is as long as you get one thing done during the day, you can kind of say, you know, that was a successful day. I got work done. So focus on getting the hardest thing done first. Eat the frog. The next thing is keep the lights on. This is a small little thing, but you wanna keep your overhead lights on. Again, because we wanna signal to our brain, it's daytime, it's focus time. And these are why offices have the big lights on overhead. Uh, and this is why as soon as I come back from my morning walk, I tell Alexa, she's not in here, thank God, but to pull, put the lights on at 100% because it's so important to have these overhead lights at the strongest possible levels you can because inside light is so much weaker than outside sunlight to kind of keep your body in this more awake state. And then, of course, this means that when you get near bed- bedtime, maybe five hours before bed, you turn these lights off. Uh, the next thing, again, this goes back to mindset, but remember why you're studying. Remember why you got into this in the first place. Maybe you're going to be a doctor, and this information, this information is important, right, For because you're treating patients. You're going to be prescribing medicine and drugs that actually have real consequences, that are actually helping or possibly harming people. So you want to know about this information as best as you possibly can. So that's it. That's the things that I would recommend around studying and the things that around studying that make sense. Now let's talk about the techniques, and if you watch any of my videos, this is going to be kind of on repeat. But these are, again, is based off evidence. This is based on a meta-analysis that looked at over hundreds of papers and said, this is the comparison of students who these do these techniques, and this is how they perform. A lot, a lot of people, the biggest kind of, most people say really, really nice things on my channel, but the biggest things I see people say is, you know, summarize. how dare you crap on summarizing? Summarizing is the best way, the most important way to do it. Maybe for you it works, and maybe uh, it works better for you than practice questions and active recall. But the evidence says that most people will perform better if they do practice questions and flashcards as opposed to summarizing. Now again, this doesn't mean for everyone this is true, and you know, maybe there's the occasional mistake on this paper, but they're looking at a lot, a lot of papers and a lot, a lot of data to come to this conclusion, um, and I think the conclusion makes sense, and I've seen it in my personal life, I've seen it in fellow students, so again, you can disagree with me, you can, you can say that, you know, I think you're wrong, Zach, and maybe it is wrong for you, but in on a generally applicable applicable basis, and on the basis of evidence, which is I think the best way we can do this, basing things off the evidence, basing things off these statistical numbers, this is the advice I'm going to give you. Stop highlighting, stop rereading, and stop summarizing. These are forms of passive learning, mostly. These are forms of learning that spend a lot of time and waste a lot of time. And the evidence says that these are non-superior to these other techniques, such as active recall, including practice questions and flashcards. And the evidence also says that these waste significantly more time. And they actually rated study techniques of low utility, medium utility, or high utility. Obviously, high utility being the best. And these techniques got ratings of low utility. So please, 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 if you want to improve your scores and you've been doing highlighting and rereading and summarizing for a long, long time, stop doing it. And the worst offender here, and I used to do this, and I was the offender, is rereading. The evidence really does not like rereading. They've done multiple studies, and the paper, of course, didn't like it at all. But I looked at tons and tons of other articles, and they say rereading really is just a waste, a waste of time. So stop doing it. So let's talk about the good things, the things that are evidence-based. And I'm going to talk about the most important things and the most evidence-based things first and then kind of change into some other techniques that still have some evidence but are mostly just techniques that have worked for me and my fellow colleagues. So the first things, the things that are the most evidence-based are three things I want to talk about. Uh, And mainly they're all forms of active recall. And all active recall is is just kind of a tough way to remember things. So if you think about your brain, if you feel your brain working hard, like if I give you the equation 37 times 15 it's kind of hard to figure out. Uh, I've, I'm doing it right now in my head, but I'm gonna stop because I don't want to embarrass myself on the math front. Uh, but it's it's hard to do, you, you think about it. But if you're just watching this video, if you're just listening to this video, you don't really have to think about it much. You're probably walking right now or maybe you're driving your car or maybe you're eating food or cooking dinner or talking to a friend or whatever. And you can do those things because this is a form of passive learning. This is a, more, a form of passive consumption. Active learning is much more difficult, and it has much better effects at you returning, retaining information on your brain. So, okay, the most evidence-based things to do are practice questions, flashcards, and interleaved practice let's go into each one of those individually. So the first thing, and I think the most important thing, is practice questions. And these are the best things for a couple of reasons. The first reason these is the best, 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 best thing to do is because it's practice for the test, right? And that's how a lot of these things are based off of. If you can perform better on the test, technically your performance is higher. So that's why maybe in the studies, these practice testing is seen as one of the most effective methods. But it makes sense. If you're practicing yourself, if you're practice testing yourself, if you're doing questions that are like hopefully the test you're going to take, you're probably going to do better on the test than people who have never done any practice questions. So where do we find practice questions? Uh, you can look in the textbook, you can ask your teacher, uh, you can go on the internet, and I think the best way to think about doing practice questions are a couple ways. So the first thing you want to think about is, are, am I ready to do practice questions? You don't want to jump directly into practice questions if you don't understand the topic at all. You want to understand the topic first before you go into doing any form of practice questions cuz I remember in my first when I first started medical school I started doing some practice questions And I just didn't understand the terms. I didn't know even the left atrium of the heart. I didn't know what these impedance numbers, what impedance meant. I didn't know what these flow diagrams were. So I was really lost. I should have taken a step back and got my understanding in order before I did practice questions. So get your understanding in order before you do your practice questions. Then make sure you're doing the right practice questions. Are you preparing for a test? Are you doing this just to learn better? If you're preparing for a test, I guarantee you, your teacher has recommendations for which practice questions you should be doing so you'll do better in the class and better on the test. Focus on those practice questions. Spend a lot of time on those practice questions because those are going to make you do better on the test. Maybe the internet has some amazing practice questions that look really cool and are really easy and really helpful, but they're not going to help you if they're not like the questions that are going to be asked on the actual test. So make sure you're doing the right practice questions. The next thing I would do is start with the easy practice questions first. And this is the way these textbooks are usually organized, right? You can, they start with the easiest practice questions and then go to the hardest practiced questions later. So start with the easiest practice questions because you're building your knowledge, you're building your understanding, and then get to the hardest questions near the end. Don't do random questions. Don't start with the hardest questions unless the easy questions really are too easy for you. Keep getting harder. Okay. The next thing, oh, this is going to be a freaking long podcast. Oh my God. Okay. Don't get the question wrong and then make a general content question or create a general content flashcard about everything in that question because it's a waste of time. Focus on the piece of information in the, flash, or in the practice question that you got wrong and learn that piece of information. Okay. Uh, and this goes nicely into my final point about doing practice questions is use flashcards with practice questions. It's an amazing superpower. When you get a practice question wrong And then you convert that piece of content into a flashcard, and especially if you use Anki or some amazing form of spaced repetition, you theoretically should never get that question wrong again because you're testing yourself at the properly spaced increments to never lose that information in your brain, which is amazing. So whenever you get a practice question wrong, focus on the piece of content that you didn't understand, turn it into a practice question, or turn it into a flashcard, and then test yourself with spaced repetition on that flashcard. We're going to talk about flashcards. That's the next thing. So flashcards, oh my god, I have so many videos on this. But very, very briefly and very high level here, uh, flashcards should be to the point. They should be simple and you should understand what's going on in the flashcard before you start testing yourself on it. So understand the information before you create a flashcard on it. So even in this example, when I'm creating a flashcard based on what's the medication for treatment for uh, Crohn's disease, I want to do a little bit of reading first because clearly this is something that I don't understand. I want to read about maybe what's the first line of defense for Crohn's disease and what is the mechanism action of these drugs and why do these drugs work before I just test myself what is the drug that's treating here. Because if you don't understand it, it becomes just memorization and memorization is not a good way to get things to stick in your brain. You want to understand things first and then you can start memorizing the little nitty gritty details and that's when Anki and flashcards come into play. Also, don't write paragraphs on your flashcards. It's not helpful. Think of fill-in-the-blank answers. So um, if you think of physics, right, uh, a, a solid is characterized by a defined, a defined volume and shape. A liquid is characterized by a defined volume but not a, fine shape, a defined shape. And a gas is characterized by not a defined volume and not a defined shape, right? So if I was doing practice questions or if I was doing a flashcard, I might say a gas has a blank shape. And a blank volume and then I might write in that fill in the blank saying, okay I know it's defined shape or defined volume or wait that's wrong I know it's not defined shape or not defined volume so those are very simple things Uh, and the other thing you want to do with flashcards and again I have tons of videos on this you can check it out but you want to make sure that you're using kind of the back and forth learning method so two plus two equals four maybe on the flashcard you see two plus two equals blank right you know that's four that's a good way to remember it, but you also want to learn it backwards. So you want to see two plus blank equals four. And then you'll have to say, okay, now I need to figure out that what do I plug in to get to four? That's two. And a great way to do this, right, is with kind of some certain definition examples. So if you want to look at the definition of a word, so hokum, right? So it's hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy um, affects the heart at this layer of the heart. uh, And it's It presents itself as a form of kind of functional aortic stenosis. Uh, Maybe you would blank out the functional aortic stenosis and the hokum part. And maybe put a little bit of information so you know it's hokum. Maybe this affects young teenagers and athletes more effectively. It's when they pass out uh, and sometimes die because they've got this obstructive disease, blah, 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 blah. Uh, And so you want to test yourself at two points during this. Uh, Other things for flashcards, you don't want to give yourself too many flashcards in the beginning because it's just too much information. So, for example, if you're using the flashcard application Anki, you probably want to do a maximum of 100 new cards a day. Uh, I could talk about flashcards forever because I love flashcards, uh, but we're going to step off that topic and go into interleaved learning. Uh, This was another high utility from the meta-analysis. And the interleaved learning just means you're testing yourself at regularly spaced intervals or spaced repetition. Uh, There's an amazing application called Anki that will space this out for you so you know when to do it it but if you're not using Anki you should be testing yourself at regular intervals because there's some evidence that shows in just 48 hours you'll lose 60% of the information you learned and in something crazy like 20 minutes you'll learn you'll lose 33% of the information you just learned so you want to be testing yourself consistently on these topics and over time so you make sure you retain this information over time because there's this thing called the forgetting curve which means the first time you learn something you forget it really quickly. But if you test yourself right before you fall off the forgetting curve, the next time you learn it, the forgetting curve goes on a little bit longer. So maybe you'll retain that information for three days as opposed to one day. And then if you test yourself before you fall off the three-day curve, maybe you'll retain that information for six days. And it keeps going up and up and up. uh, So you want to test yourself repeatedly. Those are the six most important things I would say all together is uh, stop highlighting, stop rereading, stop summarizing, and start using active recall in the form of practice questions, flashcards, and spaced repetition. Now, let's get into a couple things which maybe aren't as evidence-based, but I found to be very, very helpful, and they do have a little bit of evidence. The first thing is the Pomodoro Method, and the Pomodoro Method just means you're studying for 25 minutes at a time, five-minute break, 25 minutes at a time, five-minute break, 25 minutes at a time, five-minute break, and then the fourth time, you'll take 25 minutes studying, and then a 30-minute break. And the idea behind this is that we can only really stay focused for a certain amount of time. We want to maximize our focus during these times and then take breaks because there's these things called ultradian cycles and there's these other studies that show really you can only stay focused for a certain amount of time. And when you take breaks, it helps your performance when you come back after these breaks. Uh, The other benefit to the Pomodoro method is if you find yourself getting distracted really easily or not focusing, uh, you know, based on classical conditioning, that when you are sitting down for these 25 minutes, it's study time. It's focus time. And when it's the five minutes, you know, it's break time. You can chill out. 25 minutes, study time, focus time, five minutes, break, chill out, whatever. Because what happens sometimes if you're saying, oh, I'm just going to study for like the next six hours or something like that, that's an insanely long amount of time. And you might spend like three hours of that time just not working or not studying. And I did a little experiment on this myself, and I tried to see how many flashcards I could accomplish in two or three hours with breaks, and then with no breaks. And I actually found that I performed about 33% better with the breaks. So again, I'd either study full-time for three hours, so going through the flashcards for three hours straight, no breaks whatsoever, or taking these five-minute breaks, and occasionally 30-minute breaks during these three hours, and I performed I got done 33% more flashcards, and of course, this isn't a f- controlled study or anything like that. But I saw personally that my performance went went way up, and also my burnout went down, and I was just it was just much, much, much better. So use the Pomodoro method. Some great things to use are the Forest Timer, uh, the Focus Timer, and Self Control app on your computer. You can just look those up. The next thing I want to talk about briefly is the Feynman technique, and the Feynman technique is basically explaining something to someone else as if they were, like, a 12-year-old. So using layman terms. So, for example, if you're explaining, uh, and Richard Feynman is named after him because he was a physics teacher, educator, researcher, scientist, an amazing, amazing guy. Uh, And he was one of the best... Explainers in the world. He could explain physics like it made sense to anyone. If you wanted to look him up, just look up Richard Feynman on YouTube and you'll see him explain gravity. You can see him explain heat and cold and, and the way atoms move, and it's, it's amazing. But for example, if you were looking, if you're trying to explain uh, cell division or mitosis or something like that, uh, it would be as opposed to saying, there's telophase, anaphase, and the centromeres split to the other, the the opposite poles. Using these centromeres, and the microtubules pull on the centromeres to pull the sister chromatids apart to separate parts of the cell. You might say something like, in this portion of division, the chromosomes are pulled apart to separate parts of the cell for new daughter cells to be created. And of course, this is an extremely simplified way to say mitosis, but you want to start simple, right? And then you can add in the the important stuff later. But if you don't understand the simple explanation, if you can't explain it to yourself and in your own words, you don't understand it. Again, you want to be able to explain this to yourself and in your own words where you don't really understand it. And I think this was an Albert Einstein quote or something like that. But if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. So make sure you can explain it simply and you understand it. Another tip for the Feynman technique is make sure you're not doing this on every single thing that you're studying because that would be a huge, huge waste of time. Only use this on certain topics that are really important to understand. So for example, in medical school... You should know the way blood moves through the heart to the lungs to the various parts of the body and then how it comes back to the heart. Is It goes to go through the right atrium and then the right ventricle and all these things. You should be able to talk this out very simply and that's a very basic level. Then you should also maybe be able to talk about, I don't know, diabetes, um, heart failure. Uh, gastrointestinal diseases like inflammatory bowel diseases, uh, pneumonia. You should be able to explain these general topics at a simple level uh, or you're not studying right. Because if you know kind of the actual, maybe you know the layer of the heart that's affected in myocarditis is the myocardium and there's these certain cells that are inflamed and this is the thing, but you don't know what myocarditis actually is. You can't say, oh, it's inflammation of the heart and it can cause these things. You're starting at the wrong point. You should start at a very basic, high 10,000-foot view of understanding what's going on, and then you can get more granular to learn more of this information and start memorizing things. But if you start at the granular level, granular, granular level, you'll be doing yourself a disservice when it comes to test day. Uh, other thing with the Feynman technique, redo it a couple times. Tell it to a friend. Simplify the words. Use simple words until you really, really understand it. Two more quick things, and we're done. We're doing amazing here. So, heavy in theory. So Hebbian theory is the idea that if you make more connections in your brain, you're more likely to retain this information. So, for example, if I'm learning about a certain fish in the ocean, and this certain fish... you know, can swim deeper than any other fish because it has an amazing skeleton. Well, if I wanted to connect this to kind of another topic to make sure I understand it, I would think, okay, what other fish in the ocean have this special skeleton? Oh, I know the special submarine fish has an amazing skeleton, and then I can connect it to my XYZ fish that I just learned about. And theoretically... It should help this information stick in your brain longer because you're making more neural connections. And you can use this as flashcards. You can use this with anything. But the more connections you make, the more connections you make to the senses as well. Sight, smell, hearing, taste, even... the more likely you are to remember this information. Again, this is a theory. This isn't a law, but it's it makes sense to me. Finally, we're going to talk about breaks, and you should be taking good breaks. Uh, and what is a good break? A good break is getting up, walking outside, having some sunlight, talking to a friend, doing some exercise, um, just changing your brain and a, putting it in a different area. The the Kind of the breaks that I don't find myself rejuvenated from and not doing good performance from is like, looking at my phone, or watching a YouTube video, or staying in the same exact seat, but going on Facebook or Instagram. You really want to get up and move, hopefully leave your phone down somewhere, and go do some exercise, go meditate, go have a snack, go drink some water. Get outside is kind of the best number one thing I can do, is just just get a walk and get outside. And that's individual breaks during your study days. You also want to take the occasional big break. And that can mean a full day off. I know it's crazy, right? Or it can mean a weekend off. Or it could mean a uh, Sunday or a whole week off. You go on vacation. What I used to do in medical school is the first half of my Friday was work. But the second half of my Friday and the entire Saturday, yes, the entire Saturday, was time off. I wouldn't look at flashcards. I wouldn't do anything. Actually, no, it's a lie. We have to cut back, actually. I never. So what I would do is I would have a half day on Friday. So I would do my studying in the morning till about lunchtime. And then after lunchtime, you know what? It's Zach's time off. It's Friday afternoon. I'd chill out. I'd relax. And then Saturday morning, the only thing I would do is my Anki flashcards to make sure I'm staying up to date. And that might take me two or three hours, but then I'd be done for the entire, entire day. And I take the rest of the Saturday off, which was like 12 more hours, or eight or nine more hours left in the day. And then occasionally you want to take a full weekend off. You want to take a full week off. It's really hard, but you'll be amazed at the rejuvenation and the vigor that you bring into the studying and how much your performance improves. Okay. Let me know what you think. Again, I'm new to this whole thing, so but please be a little bit nice to me. Did you like it? Did you dislike it? Or do you want me to talk about certain things? Um but yeah, if you like it, what do people on podcasting say you should do? I guess give me reviews on the Apple podcast thing. Send it to your friends, but only if you like it. Uh but I hope it was helpful. Thank you so much for listening, reading, watching, whatever.